This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCastNet. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I am Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we analyze the order of the Vances. And then with A Distant Light Pierces the Mist, we discuss the horror film Suspiria. Join us on the path of suns and we may uncover a secret or two. In the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss an aspect of the Invisible Sun RPG in detail. And this week we're going to be talking about one of the magical orders in Invisible Sun. And we're going to start with the first one, once again following along in the Kickstarter's footsteps. Uh, And we're going to be talking about the Order of the Vance this time around. So, Scott, as a veteran of role-playing games and D&D in particular... What does the name Vance mean to you? Vance reminds me of the term Vancean magic, which I was told for decades is the one true way to have any sort of magic user in an RPG because that's how Dungeons and Dragons did it. Well, it, yeah, it is the one true way. And any other way that uh, has been tried has not not gone over well and it's terrible. And we should all just do Vancean magic, right? Unless, of course, we could come up with, say, four other orders. Yeah, I, I guess we could do that. That's fine. <laughs> Yes, and of course I am being sarcastic. There is all sorts of fun magic to be had uh, with different systems. I I guess I can't say most notably, but even uh, Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition has kind of changed how the wizard does their magic. It's no longer a... It's not the same Vancean system that they had in the traditional Dungeons & Dragons settings where, I guess let's get into it, Vance, Vancean magic. Uh, It's a, a magical system that is based on... Um, Jack Vance's Dying Earth series of fiction. So Jack Vance uh, wrote this series of um, short stories, and I don't think he ever actually had a novel. Uh, I did not look too much into uh, the Dying Earth series to, to say one way or the other. Uh, have you have you read it? I've read the first collection. So it's a little ambiguous as to what one considers a short story and what one considers a novel. Uh, He wrote a series of short stories that he later revised for the purposes of collecting together into a series of two or four novels. Okay. So whether you consider that just a collection of short stories that were mildly revised or a novel because it was intendedly published in a coherent form is somewhat up for debate. I've only read the first of those. Yeah, and I've read bits and pieces of the first story. I don't remember exactly how far I got into it, but I do have it sitting on my on my bookshelf and I should probably pull it out again sometime and, and try and get through it. Um, but uh, magic in the Dying Earth series was something that was difficult to gain control of and and use. So the magic users in that series, when they would use their magic, it would just disappear from their brains after they were done with it. It would just go away, uh, which led into the D&D Vancean magic system in which your wizard prepares a bunch of spells uh, and you get a certain number of them. Like I have 
three first level spells and of course they're all magic missile so i can only use magic missile three times before it's done and gone and i can't use it anymore that day uh so the order of the vance is i think kind of calling back to the dying earth series a little bit more than dungeons and dragons did with their vancian magic because what they're doing is they're they're creating a mental map of sorts and there's going to be a mini game that uh, a Vancian mage is going to be using in order to determine which spells they have access to. Uh, and you can see that in the Kickstarter that they put together, uh, the, the video for the Kickstarter that was specifically about Vancian magic. There'll be a, a link in the show notes. Uh, and Monty gets into detail about how that little game is going to work for a mage of the Order of the Vance. But in a nutshell, you're going to have a grid and you're going to place your spells on that grid and whatever spells you can fit on there are the spells you're going to have access to from my understanding of it. Also, in the in the video, it's, it's a rectangular grid and he's placing rectangular spells onto the grid itself. And that doesn't mean that those spells are necessarily going to be differently sized rectangles maybe they're going to be tetronimos in the end uh, though they are going to be printing all of the information you need for your spells on these cards so if you if you get into really weird tetronimo shapes i don't know it might get really annoying to try and read your read your spell stuff off of there yeah it's it is kind of interesting to think of of how they're going to work this mini game as a way to differentiate vances from the other orders of magic there was also some discussion of how I, I I believe when you cast a spell you can try to keep it so that yeah. you don't forget it. Uh, but if you fail that role of suggesting you failed your mastery of magic, that's when you forget the spell for some period of time until it is prepared again. And he even used some kind of vivid language about how you can imagine these spells as like semi sentient memes. Mm -hmm. Uh, kind of exploding from the mind of the Vance, and they're trying to prevent it from escaping, uh, which is very flavorful, and I'm curious to see how it works out in play. Yeah, they talk a little bit about how spells are living things in their own right, uh, and you can read about this in the Kickstarter update that they posted, and there will be a, sh a link to the show in the show notes once again. But yeah, they, they do mention that spells are living things, and trying to master them is is problematic there's there's a lot of danger involved because you're basically taking this you know sentient living magic creature and stuffing it into your brain so that you can harness it later and touching back on how you retain it or expend it i believe what they they had talked about in the video is you can use your qualia which is one of the resources that a vislay has you can use your qualia to retain your usage of your magic. So if you have a, a spell that you want to hang on to, let's say you've got some goofy spell that opens puzzle boxes or something, or you know a spell that you know lights the darkness. And I'm talking about not just you know darkness. I'm talking about the dark, which maybe at some point we'll get to talk about because I like the idea of a place where devils like to hang out. Uh, but you can spend your qualia in order to retain that spell in your mind. Uh, and if you don't use your qualia, that's when you lose access to the spell and you pull it off your sheet and you don't have, like, you can't cast it anymore. 
I like it as a resource management issue because it is it is pretty clear that not all spells will be the same size. Mm-hmm. And so you can make choices about having many smaller spells or a few larger spells or some combination of the two. Mm-hmm. And then making the resource management choice of which spells you cast and forget versus which ones you cast and, and expend resources to retain. It creates a, a variety of important choices for Vances to make that are going to be unique to Vances and will shape the way, the experience of players when they're playing Vances and distinguish those experiences from playing the other orders. Yeah, I can see preparing your spells uh, as an interesting sort of game that you get to play. Um Though one of the things that I really never got into as a wizard in Dungeons and Dragons was anticipating the spells that I would need and then trying to prepare the right ones. Because inevitably at the end of a play session, I would be stuck with a whole bunch of spells that just weren't doing anything for me. And it's like, well, what am I doing with these spells? Because they're just wasting my time. Like these are resources I have no use for. And that's something they've tried to change and, and, and how they moved away from a, the original first edition and original D&D magic mechanic within Dungeons & Dragons where you mm-hmm. had to declare in advance every spell and how many times you would use that spell in any given day. So even if you were correct, you needed those magic missiles. If you had the wrong number of those magic missiles, you were left with too many or too few. The correct number of magic missiles is all. <laughs> uh, that's my experience from the old SSI gold box games as well. <laughs> Yeah, but now you do. I believe it, 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 you declare which spells you have prepared, but you do not declare how many of each spell at each level you have to or you are able to cast, which gives you a little bit more flexibility than you had under the old first edition, though I'm not quite sure which one is truly more Vancean. Um, I, I would think that the first the earlier versions is a little bit more Vancean, though, I guess you, you are still preparing and you know, anticipating the things that you're going to need. It is a little more flexible in the newer systems, but but we're not here to talk about Dungeons & Dragons, right? <laughs> uh, no, but it's, it's a useful comparison point. Yeah. Uh, I, in, when, in reading Vance, I do recall something very much like that first edition preparation, where in the, in the story I, I remember reading, I think last summer, uh, the wizard is saying, okay, well, I, I know I'm going to need these three spells. And basically mm-hmm. one was like an invisibility spell and one was like another spell. And there was no dis- there was no discussion, though, of how many times he'd cast any of them. The presumption was, and convenience of, of the plot worked out such, that he could cast each spell exactly one time and get through mm-hmm. the whole plot. Um, so it, that might have been closer to the original. And in, the, in that sense, the Vance is not partic- is, is not truly Vancean because there is this mechanic of retaining a spell after you have cast it. Uh, but I think that introduces an interesting option for play and a decision to be made. So I, yep. I like that, that that change. Yeah, that that's a neat change. And I, I also do like the idea of trying to, you know, trying to maximize the the ability that you're going to have to cast your spells, you know, through the course of the game. Like, so in the video, they, they showed uh, a very simple concept of what they're looking for. And it was a grid and on... One side, he said, well, you could have a spell that might take up, you know, this much space. And he, you know, marked aside about half of the grid and said this could be, you know, a very powerful spell. Uh, And that's why it takes up so much room. But the effect that it's going to have in the game is going to be significant. And then you have this other space where you're fitting in all these other little spells that 
you know, you might find some utility for, but maybe they're not going to be very useful. And if they're small, it gives you a lot of choices to work with. And these these are going to be cards that are going to come in the box. One of, one of the questions that people had during the Kickstarter was, how many cards are you going to get for Vanceans? Is there going to be a limit to the number of Vance mages that you can have in your group? Or are you going to start running into problems if you have you know, the standard size RPG group of five players. What if they're all Vance's? What are we going to do about that? I, I don't really know. Yeah, I, I'm not sure they've answered that question. Uh, though I thought there was something about how the Vizli pack could be used as a way to, or would provide for a fairly broad range of mixtures of different mm-hmm. orders. But I don't think they've committed to necessarily something as specific as the basic box will allow you to have five Vances or three Vances or whatever the number is. I, I don't know. They they haven't committed to anything, but I'm pretty sure you're going to be able to do more than one Vance without issue. I'm not so sure about having a whole party of five Vances. Then again, if all you're doing is fitting a handful of spells onto your onto your brain map, your mind map, it might not be that big a deal. It, it very well may be print and play. Possibly. They might release these cards or the maps and say, okay, you know, <laughs> these aren't very useful if you don't have the game anyway. Mm-hmm. So if you've got the game and you want to download this, you know, printout of a of a brain shape and these cards, then good town. Or it may just have cards that are the, that have only the name but not the effects on them or something along those lines. I could see a variety of things they could do. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, something to note, as your character increases in power and capability, your mind map is going to get larger. So you're going to be able to fit more spells in there, which, cool. Um, have they said whether specifically it's going to be advancing in your order that does that? They didn't. I don't think they said specifically. So... Since there are many different ways to advance your characters from what we understand, maybe you're going to be able to you know, increase your capabilities in magic through a variety of ways. So if you're not interested in advancing through your order, like that's not what you're focusing on for your character, I would imagine that there's going to be some way that you can increase your mind map without having to become a better Vance you know, in terms of your order. Though I wouldn't mind if, if they said, if you want to get a better, bigger mind map, you better advance your order. If you want to become better at your focus, um, or whatever the focus substitute was, uh, then you, you invest in that. So you're making choices into where you, you invest your character advancement, and the increase, increase in your mind map is just the consequence of increasing your advance order. Um, mm-hmm. that, that would be fine to me. But we'll have to see how that plays out. We don't know for sure. Yeah, and uh, the, the focus... Uh, analog that we have is forte forte that's the other f word yes 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 we can use that f word (laughs) um it has it has more letters it's good i don't have too much else to talk about here uh other than the vances are an order of the invisible church and we have three more orders in the invisible church to talk about and one additional order that probably is not part of the invisible church so I think we can probably wrap it up here and move on to our next segment. In a distant light pierces the mist, we discuss a source of inspiration for Invisible Sun. Since Halloween is right around the corner, we thought discussing something with a horror tone would add seasonal flavor to the podcast. Specifically, we have chosen to talk about Dario Argento's Suspiria. 
Suspiria is part of the film genre referred to as giallo horror. Uh, this is Italian pulp horror named after the classic Italian horror novels, traditionally published with a yellow cover. And though so giallo just means yellow. Uh, and is refers to this particular genre. Uh, I will warn you, the listeners, that uh, this movie is not safe for work. It is a gory horror film, though for interesting reasons, it doesn't have as much of the as nudity or, or sexual content as a lot of other horror films did in that this era. It is definitely gory and violent. Um, so keep that in mind when considering uh, a viewing of Suspiria. So let me give you a quick summary of the movie um, and the context in which it was made before we talk about how it can inspire Invisible, Invisible Sun games. So the summary is actually pretty simple. Uh, a promising ballet student from the United States travels to a famous dance academy in Germany. She slowly learns the academy is more than it seems and may retain ties to its origin as an early 20th century school of dance and the occult like all of those other schools of dance and the occult you've heard of. Uh, you may have figured out that the plot doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If you look back at the plot, there's a lot of holes, a lot of decisions, and other elements of the movie do not make much sense. This is common to giallo films, and particularly the work of Dario Argento, who tried to make his films dreamlike. This was, in fact, part of an intended trilogy of films called the Three Mothers Trilogy, inspired by a, an English writer of uh, the book, I believe it was called Confessions of an Opium Eater, where he said he had a dream of three witches that he called the Three Mothers. So when you are writing a movie inspired by a novel about an opium addict, you can play a little fast and loose with the plot. So Suspiria is released in 1977 to... Mixed reviews, though it is now considered one of the high marks of horror in the 20th century, films at least. 1980, he follows this up with a movie called Inferno, and then he waits 27 years to complete the trilogy with a movie called The Mother of Tears. But Suspiria is considered the best of the three by most accounts, and it is in fact up for a remake in 2017. So Dave, <laughs> what... Um, uh, have you seen the movie, and uh, what is your kind of your your experience and uh, with the movie? Uh, yeah, I, I just finished watching the movie like immediately before we started recording. Though that was my second viewing, I swear I've seen this movie within the last ten years or so. So yeah, I've seen the movie, and I like it. I think it's I think it's pretty goofy, in a good way though. I, I took a lot of notes on the colors. Though I didn't make any notes about what was yellow because that did not show up in the movie. So I guess that I'd have to argue with the yellow, yellow descriptor. I can, I can uh, well, it, it is, it's in the genre of giallo, but yellow is referring to the cover of the novels. It's kind of a historical accident that they use yellow. Yeah, I was just kidding. Though uh, in Suspiria, there are actually some some scenes that are predominantly yellow in color, but they are outnumbered by a wide margin by red and blue scenes. Yeah, I noticed a lot of red and blue, and then there was some green towards the end of the film. I don't remember the yellow stuff specifically, so I'm going to have to scan through it again and, and check that out. Yeah, that, that, um, but yeah, this movie is, this movie is pretty neat. Uh, it's really weird to watch. There are a lot of interesting framings that they do in this movie that you know it, it's really neat to look at 
one of the lessons and inspirations I, I think we can draw from this is the use of vivid colors. And it's certainly what the movie is remembered for. Argento is remembered as a whole for, for his use of color. And I, I joke sometimes that the late 70s in, U, in the U.S. film industry is notorious for not using much color. If you think of movies like Taxi Driver and some of the kind of realist movies of the late 70s, mm-hmm. that maybe it was just that Argento stole all the color. Uh, because it all of the color shows up in Suspiria and some of his other films. And, and it, it's so vivid. And it, it stands against what we usually think of, of horror films as being dark. But he tried to turn this on its head to say that actually color can itself be experiential and horrifying. And that it's not just the absence of light and the absence of color that can be horrifying. I've got to say that uh, his use of color really made the scenes stand out. He made everything seem very strange when you would see those very bright primary colors showing up. Like it, it was unsettling to me as a modern view, movie viewer. Almost overwhelming in some of its color and uniform within locations, which was interesting. I couldn't quite decode whether red in particular and blue and green were signifying specific consistent tones or messages. But certain locations would have key colors and they would be almost saturated with those colors. It would almost look like it was a black and white movie that was recolored, replacing all of the white with red or blue or something along those lines. Mm hmm. And that had an interesting effect just on in the emotional reaction to viewing the film. Uh, as far as the coding for the colors, I, I was looking for, initially I was looking at all the reds and blues. Uh, and I was trying to figure out, you know, what's happening when stuff is red, what's happening when stuff is blue. Uh, and red shows up a lot. It shows up right from the beginning of the movie. Uh, when she's getting... When she's coming out of the airport, there's a lot of red in the airport. Uh, And then she gets to the school, which the entire exterior of the school is red. Uh, Though I think the windows have blue frames, which they, you get to see better in the daylight later on. But then, you know, the entire interior of the school, I guess not the entire, but a lot of the school is red as well. Mostly the hallway leading back to the dance studios. Uh, There's a foyer in the... Uh, in the dance building, the school, sorry. Uh, there's a foyer in the school that is almost entirely blue, uh, though it does have a gold handrail that leads up the stairs. So there's a lot of stuff that happens when things are red, and it's, you know, there's there's a lot of magic happening when red is going on. Uh, the, the dinner, the food that she's eating you know, towards the middle half of the movie, it's always lit in red, and it is not a good meal that she's being served no <laughs> so when i was seeing the red i was i was thinking to myself oh okay red is red is danger red is bad red is an indication that things are going wrong well, like magic is happening but then blue starts showing up and bad things start happening in blue too so you know i threw that theory out the window uh but it just seems like whenever those those striking colors are coming into play that's when there is magic occurring and impacting the story. The closest I could find was that the scenes with the most vivid colors were scenes where one character was alone. And you see very few interactions. There are a few, but very few interactions between characters in these sorts of, of, of monochromatic scenes. Instead, they sort of indicate an isolation and this mm-hmm. and a, a lack of realism. When you move into the normality of group interactions, that's when you see scenes that are that are lit and colored the way you would normally expect scenes to be lit and colored, the way we're used to seeing those scenes in a more realist tone. 
Yeah, you're. I think you're right about the the isolation being indicated by the colors. I was gonna say, wait, wait a second. There's a a scene where uh, Susie and one of the other girls, I don't know her name, uh, they were trying to count the number of footsteps that were going down the hall. At least the other girl was, because Susie at that point was out of it. She was drugged and not interacting very much. So, yeah, I guess you're right that in those instances, it's still isolation, even though there are two characters. It's just that one is not really in the scene. Yeah, and I apologize if probably neither of us can remember many of the names of the characters, but that's because characters don't <laughs> really matter in this movie or many Argento movies. He doesn't care about characters and character development. <laughs> that's not no. what he's going for. <laughs> so distinguishing between a bunch of ballet students is a little difficult when they all wear the same uniforms and by and large look like stereotypical ballet dancers. Uh, I, I did read an interview somewhere that I thought was, was amusing where Argento referred to trying to copy the color palette of Disney's Snow White. Mm -hmm. And uh, that also points to how he wanted to make this a, a fairy tale, um, and but a, you know, a live action fairy tale. And the colors reinforce that sense of, of being a fairy tale and un, you know, unrealistic representation, unreal space. But sitting next to the real space of the happenings in a dance studio. Uh, so I thought it was kind of interesting to think about this as being a live action, violent Disney cartoon. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. So it's hard to say how we could borrow the vivid colors for an RPG. We can't just hold up color swatches and say, and now you see a bunch of yellow. Uh, but I think it yeah. is worth reinforcing the importance of describing colors because I know Personally, as a GM and as a player, I, I often leave out color um, and talk only about form and, and appearance without emphasizing color. Uh, when I could use color both as a description of individual elements, but also as, as a something that ties elements together within a scene. Uh, and that's something that this just is an extreme version of that might remind us of how to use color in describing a setting. Yeah, it's something you have to be very intentional about because... Once you forget to bring those colors in, like that's it. Your players are imagining what they want to imagine. And if you don't mention, oh, hey, and the walls here, everything is a bright, vivid blue, then those walls aren't blue. And, <laughs> and your use of color is out the window. Right. Uh, and and that's very much like, as comparing an Argento film to other horror films where the color is more naturalistic and therefore unnoticed. Uh, whereas Argento is using it in order to evoke certain emotions. Uh, and if you want to see some of the examples of this, we'll have a link in the show notes to just a screen gallery that uh, illustrates the different color palettes that Argento is using in Suspiria. But I think we can generalize beyond just the colors. Uh, Argento try really uses a variety of sensations and emphasizes atypical sensations for horror films. And so he relies upon music a lot, which is not entirely novel for horror films, to be sure. But mm -hmm. man, does he lean on the soundtrack by Goblin, the experimental group that he uses for a lot of his movies. Which is fantastic. Goblin is the best. Yeah, we have a, we'll have a link in the show notes to a YouTube video that has the trailer and the intro music from Goblin to give you some sense of how the music really evokes a sense of a fairy tale that degrades and becomes dissonant and tinny over time. 
Uh, and not so much in the example on on the link in the show notes, but in the movie itself, at times it'll descend into just being unrelated screaming in the background. <laughs> yeah, there there was a scene where uh, the the little boy gets bitten by the dog, and if you if you watch that again, you'll hear you'll hear the dog barking and the boy yelling about getting bitten. Uh, don't worry, uh, that little boy is awful and he deserves it because uh, he's actually a monster. Um, but like the audio for it sort of fades into Goblin's soundtrack that's you know coming up at that point. And I had to listen to it a couple times because I didn't know what I was hearing. I was like, wait a second, that they were just walking by that dog and now is this part of the soundtrack or is this actually something that's happening? And, and I remember a scene where there was these weird choking sounds and it kind of looked up and paid attention to these weird choking sounds because it didn't make any sense in the context. And there was a cut to the next scene, which was actually water draining down a sink that was making these sounds. But they were very clearly intended to be or invoke a sense of choking. So he's just playing with our sense of sound and hearing and how we're mm -hmm. associating those sounds with what we're seeing as a viewer of the film or the characters presumably are experiencing in their world to create this dissonance, which was really effective and unsettling. I guess we didn't put this at the top of the, the segment, but we're just, I'm, I'm not worrying about spoilers. Yeah. Um, we, in this some movie is this 40 in years old. <laughs> yeah, let's say we, we put it in the beginning of the of the segment when I said it was in 1977. <laughs> yeah, we may still want to say, hey, we're going to spoil it. Yeah, um, though I will say what, we, what we've said so far isn't spoiling much. Um, it's not spoiling not... the most dramatic and memorable scenes in the movie. If you really are afraid of spoilers, go ahead and stop now. But because I, I don't really feel like holding back much on a 40 year old movie. But we haven't really given away much of the of what happens in the movie, in part because the movie experience is not dominated by what happens, but yeah. what you feel. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely think watching this movie, even knowing what happens, is worth it. It's it's definitely neat. As for the music. You could just play this music in the background if you're trying to unsettle your players with background noise. I, I probably should just play it during office hours and see what effects <laughs> it has on my students when they come in. That would be a fascinating experiment. Yeah, I, I could totally cue this up while I'm coding, and I'm sure I'd be very productive. <laughs> but this, the use of sensations, music, uh, the, the dissonance between the sounds and what we're seeing, and, and the vivid colors all really refer back to how we discussed surrealism back in episode one, that the movie accentuates realism in some elements, making things very simple and realistic as a way to contrast with the vivid, unreal and exaggerated aspects of the movie. So you have these, you know, these ballerinas that look just like ballerinas running around in an old mm -hmm. German building that looks just like an old Gothic German building. And it has a weight of realism to it, but around it, the lighting on the building makes it seem odd. And the sounds in the environment around these characters make it all seem unreal, while we're well, visually what we're seeing seems quite realistic. Mm -hmm. Except for some of the more violent death scenes, those those really do extend beyond realism uh, but the but the most of the events seem fairly realistic for most of the movie and it's the use of these other sensations that bring the sense of of unrealism to the experience mm -hmm. and maybe the most useful element of the movie uh that i think for invisible sun 
stories and, and adventures is how this whole movie is intended to be experienced as a dream or maybe you could say a nightmare. And thus it operates more on dream logic than our traditional sort of movie plotting. Oh, if we're talking about dream logic, can we make our next movie uh, Dream Warriors, Nightmare on Elm Street 3? Having seen that in theaters when it originally came out, I think I'm going to have to give that a hard pass. Ah, okay. (laughs) Though you might convince me otherwise if you're willing to sit through the theme song for Dream Warriors repeatedly. Yes, I am. (laughs) Was that Dawkins? I, I don't know, but Dream Warriors is the greatest uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Um, I mean, aside from the first one, which is actually pretty good. Yeah, uh, that that is an argument for another day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think Dream Logic is something that will be very important for for Invisible Sun because it is the way that surrealism can express itself in plot. And thus, if we want a surreal game in plot and not just in dressing, uh, then we'll need to engage more carefully with what it means to have dream logic in our, our adventures and our RPGs. And I'm just now trying to figure this out. <laughs> yeah, this is something that we should probably have a whole segment about because, you know, there there's an old adage that says describing your dream to somebody else is super boring for that person. So if we want to turn that into an RPG setting, like if we want to pull that into one of our sessions, it seems like there would be a fine line between making it interesting and making it just garbage. Yeah, there's a couple useful references within this movie to illustrate some dream logic that can get the conversation going. And then I suspect it's a conversation we'll return to a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and examples from this movie are that, you know, as I mentioned, the plot doesn't make much sense when you step back from it. But honestly, when you're watching it, I didn't find it to be that jarring. Um, I didn't find the problems with the plot or the parts of the movie that didn't make sense in retrospect to interfere with the experience of watching the movie Mm -hmm. Um, in part because scene to scene things make sense it's when you start adding things up over combinations of multiple scenes that you start to see discrepancies or elements that that don't don't add up i think the same could be said for almost any long-running rpg campaign yes i think you're right Uh, it's something i refer to as as local rationality that sure. is uh, that when you that moving from scene A to scene B makes sense and B to C makes sense. But somewhere down the line, you might say, wait a second, how do we get from A to F? And that's OK if the A to B, B to C, C to D all made sense. And dream mm-hmm. logic seems to work that way, that if the last five minutes make sense, just go with it and you're OK uh, within dream logic. But as soon as the dream ends and you're thinking back and trying to figure piece it all together again, you realize, wait a second, some of this didn't fit together. Um, and it didn't make as much sense as it seemed to in the moment. Yeah. So in, in, in the movie, there's all sorts of hidden passages in this old German uh, dance uh, academy uh, and, and with full-sized hallways that really must make up about half the building. <laughs> it doesn't make much sense that half the building is hidden passages. Uh, but within the the experience of the movie, it didn't really stand out. These were just creepy hidden passages like you'd expect to find in a gothic building. Of course. Uh, and then there's other, you know, as one of the major uh, scenes in the movie, uh, I still don't know why a dance studio needs a room full of unspooled <laughs> razor wire. I think you know why. Okay. Well, to, maybe to keep I'm... the dancers from escaping. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I should ask whether we need that uh, for our graduate students, but I have not gotten <laughs> funding for it yet. Well, you know, that's how it goes with, uh, you know, school budgets these days. 
Yeah. And the, the best story I heard about the movie and how it kind of creates this unsettling sense of dream logic where it's internally consistent but doesn't quite seem to fit up in retrospect is that Argento apparently wrote the entire script for 12-year-old actors. So he wanted this dance academy to be filled with a bunch of 12-year-old ballerinas. And for reasons that are obvious to anyone who's seen the movie, the funding sources and the production company said, oh, no, 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 no. You can't do this to 12-year-olds. <laughs> we are not going to have a movie of you slaughtering a bunch of 12-year-olds. That so, really would have made the movie a lot stranger. <laughs> yes. Um, and he didn't rewrite the plot very much. So this is one of the explanations people offer as to why, unlike a lot of other horror films in the late 70s, um, sexual imagery is downplayed in this movie. There's, there's a lot of violence, but mm -hmm. there isn't a lot of nudity or other sorts of sexual imagery that's common in other movies of the time. Um, it's because the script was written for 12-year-olds, and he was not he did not intend to write 12-year-olds in those situations. Mm -hmm. um, he was going to kill them off violently, but <laughs> that would you know those, those sorts of relationships were, were out of bounds to him. But one the, the most interesting implication of this is that because he still had in mind that the, the movie should feel like it is being told about a bunch of 12-year-olds, the world should seem big to the actors. Mm -hmm. It should be out of out of proportion to them. So he had all of the doorknobs raised six to eight inches above where they would have been um, in any regular building. And just raising the doorknobs made every actor seem small relative to the doors they were going through and the rooms in which they were they were standing for any particular scene. So it just creates this weird dissonance where the suddenly the ballerinas, who are already thin, small actresses, um, seemed aged down because of the setting in which they are framed. Yeah, that uh, that red hallway is extremely tall. <laughs> yes. He also it skillfully uses camera angles to exaggerate all of these effects. Uh, but I was amused at how dedicated he was to raise the doorknobs in order to have this very subtle effect on the viewers uh, and their sense that the actors will be younger and smaller than they actually were. Did you have any final comments or you know, inspirations coming out of Suspiria moving into the Halloween season uh, for our Invisible Sun games or for other games? Not for games in, in particular. Suspiria is a pretty good Halloween movie. Another one from Argento would be Deep Red. That one's really good. I, I highly recommend both of them. Yeah, there's a lot of films that haven't in, in the Italian horror genre that haven't gotten as much play in the U.S. as they probably deserve. Uh, in addition to Argento, you might look at some of the work of Mario Bava. Uh, is, is some of it is is very good, um, but you know, and Italian horror cinema is famous generally for its use of some of these exaggerated, sometimes expressionist use of architecture, use of color. Uh, use of extreme camera angles and its disregard for realism in plot and realism in camera work, which mm -hmm. actually helps us if we're trying to develop uh, surreal, expressionist, or otherwise strange and unreal uh, adventures uh, within our RPGs. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. 
It is available from DriveThruRPG. Check the show notes for a link. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can also find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com, and you can find me at at DR Scott Robinson on Twitter. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Tex underscore Red. Also, you can find us on iTunes now uh, and other podcasting apps, uh, whatever you might use. We should be there. And if you like what you hear, please give us a rating and a review. We hear that's really helpful to have. Thanks. <laughs>